Section 14 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 3 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 37 The Orsini Bombs Explode in Paris and London. Part 1. The last chapter has told us that Lord Palmerston introduced a measure to transfer to the Crown the government of India but that unexpected events in the meanwhile compelled him to resign office and call lord derby and mr disraeli to power these events had nothing to do directly with the general policy of lord palmerston or lord derby at midday of january fourteenth eighteen fifty eight no one could have had the slightest foreboding of anything about to happen which could affect the place of lord palmerston in english politics he seemed to be as popular and as strong as a minister well could be. There had been a winter session called together on December 3rd to pass a bill of indemnity for the government who had suspended the Bank Charter Act during the terrible money panic of the autumn and the failures of banks and commercial firms. The bank was authorized by the suspension of the Charter Act to extend its circulation to millions beyond the limit of that act the effect of this step in restoring confidence was so great that the bank had only to put in circulation some nine hundred thousand pounds beyond the limit of eighteen forty four and even that sum was replaced and a certain reserve established by the close of the year most people thought the government had met the difficulty promptly and well and were ready to offer their congratulations parliament adjourned at christmas and was to meet early in february the princess victoria eldest daughter of the queen was to be married to the prince frederick william eldest son of the then prince of prussia now german emperor and it was to be lord palmerston's pleasant task when parliament resumed in february to move a vote of congratulations to her majesty on her child's marriage meantime however on the evening of january fourteenth felice orsini an italian exile made his memorable attempt to assassinate the emperor of the french orsini lost himself and he drew the english government down at the same time felice orsini was well known in england after his romantic escape from a prison at mantua he came to this country and delivered lectures in several towns he described the incidents of his escape and denounced Austrian rule in Italy and was made a lion of in many places. He was a handsome, soldierly-looking man with intensely dark eyes and dark beard, in appearance almost the model Italian conspirator of romance. He was not an orator, but he was able to tell his story clearly and well one great object which he had in view was to endeavour to rouse up the english people to some policy of intervention on behalf of italy against austria it is almost impossible for a man like orsini to take the proper measure of the enthusiasm with which he is likely to be received in england he goes to several public meetings he is welcomed by immense crowds he is cheered to the echo and he gets to be under the impression that the whole country is on his side and ready to do anything he asks for he does not understand that the crowds go for the most part out of curiosity that they represent no policy or action whatever 
and that they will have forgotten all about him by the day after tomorrow. Of those who went to hear Orsini and who applauded him so liberally, not one in ten probably had a distinct idea as to who he was or what cause he represented. He was an Italian exile who had escaped from tyranny of some sort somewhere, and he was a good-looking man, and that was enough for many or most of his audiences. But Orsini was thoroughly deceived. He convinced himself that he was forming public opinion in England, that he was inspiring the people, that the people would inspire the government, and that the result would be an armed intervention on behalf of Lombardy and Venetia. At a meeting which he held in Liverpool, a merchant of that town who sympathized cordially with Orsini's cause had the good sense to get up and tell Orsini that he was cruelly deceiving himself if he fancied that England either would or could take any step to intervene on behalf of the Italian provinces then held by Austria. Orsini at first thought little of this warning. After a while, however, he found out that the advice was sound and just. He saw that England would do nothing. He might have seen that even the English liberals, with the exception of a very few enthusiasts, were entirely against his projects. They were, in fact, just as much opposed to the principle of intervention in the affairs of other states as the conservatives. But Orsini set himself to devise explanations for what was simply the prudent and just determination of all the statesmen and leading politicians of the country. He found the explanation in the subtle influence of the Emperor of the French. It happened that during Orsini's residence in this country, the Emperor and Empress of the French came on a visit to the Queen at Osborne, and Orsini saw in this a conclusive confirmation of his suspicions. Disappointed, despairing, and wild with anger against Louis Napoleon, he appears then to have allowed the idea to get possession of him that the removal of the Emperor of the French from the scene was an indispensable preliminary to any policy having for its object the emancipation of Italy from Austrian rule. He brooded on this idea until it became a project and a passion. It transformed a soldier and a patriot into an assassin. On January 14th, Orsini and his fellow conspirators made their attempt in the Rue Le Pelletier in Paris. As the Emperor and Empress of the French were driving up to the door of the Opera House in that street, Orsini and his companions flung at and into the carriage three shells or bombs shaped like a pear and filled with detonating powder. The shells exploded and killed and wounded many persons. So minute were the fragments into which the bombs burst that five hundred and sixteen wounds, great and little, were inflicted by the explosion. This attempt at assassination was unfavorably distinguished from most other attempts by the fact that it took no account of the number of innocent lives which it imperiled. The murderers of William the Silent of Henry the Fourth, of Abraham Lincoln, could at least say that they only struck at the objects of their hate. In Orsini's case, the emperor's wife, the emperor's attendants and servants, the harmless and unconcerned spectators in the crowd who had no share in Austrian misgovernment, 
were all exposed to the danger of death or of horrible mutilation. Ten persons were killed, 156 were wounded. For any purpose it aimed at, the project was an utter failure. It only injured those who had nothing whatever to do with Orsini's cause, or the condition of the Italian populations. We may as well dispose at once also of a theory which was for a time upheld by some who would not indeed justify or excuse Orsini's attempt, but who were inclined to believe that it was not made wholly in vain. Orsini failed, it was said, but nevertheless the emperor of the French did soon after take up the cause of Italy. And he did so because he was afraid of the still-living confederates of the Lombard Scaevola, and wished to purchase safety for himself by conciliating them. Even the prince consort wrote to a friend on April 11, 1858, about Louis Napoleon, I fear he is at this moment meditating some Italian development which is to serve as a lightning conductor, for ever since Orsini's letter he has been all for Italian independence. Historical revelations made at a later period showed that this is altogether a mistake. We now know that at the time of the Congress of Paris, Count Cavour had virtually arranged with the Emperor the plans of policy which were afterwards carried out, and that even before that time Cavour was satisfied in his own mind as to the ultimate certainty of Louis Napoleon's cooperation. Those who are glad to see Italy a nation may be glad, too, to know that Orsini's bombs had nothing to do with her success. Orsini was arrested. Curiously enough, his arrest was made more easy by the fact that he himself received a wound from one of the fragments of shell, and he was tracked by his own blood marks. Great as his crime was, he compelled a certain admiration from all men by the manner in which he bore his fate. He avowed his guilt, and made a strenuous effort to clear of all complicity in it a man who was accused of being one of the conspirators. He wrote from his prison to the emperor, beseeching him to throw his influence into the national cause of Italy. He made no appeal on his own behalf. The emperor, it is believed, was well inclined to spare his life, but the comprehensive heinousness of the crime which took in so many utterly blameless persons rendered it almost impossible to allow the leading conspirator to escape. As it was, however, the French government certainly showed no unreasonable severity. Four persons were put on trial as participators in the attempt, three of them having actually thrown the bombs. Only two, however, were executed, Orsini and Pieri. The other two were sentenced to penal servitude for life. This, on the whole, was merciful dealing. Three Fenians, it must be remembered, were executed in Manchester for an attempt to rescue some prisoners, in which one police officer was killed by one shot. Orsini's project was a good deal more criminal. Most sane persons will admit than a mere attempt to rescue a prisoner, and it was the cause not of one but of many deaths. Orsini died like a soldier, without bravado and without the slightest outward show of fear. As he and his companion Pieri were mounting the scaffold, he was heard to encourage the latter in a quiet tone. Pieri continued to show signs of agitation, and then Orsini was heard to say in a voice of gentle remonstrance, Try to be calm, my friend, 
try to be calm. France was not very calm under the circumstances. An outburst of anger followed the attempt in the Rue Le Pelletier, but the anger was not so much against Orsini as against England. One of the persons charged along with Orsini, although he was not tried in Paris, for he could not be found there, was a Frenchman, Simon Bernard, who had long been living in London. It was certain that many of the arrangements for the plot were made in London. The bombs were manufactured in Birmingham and were ordered for Orsini by an Englishman. It was known that Orsini had many friends and admirers in this country. The imperialists in France at once assumed that England was a country where assassination of foreign sovereigns was encouraged by the population and not discouraged by the laws. The French minister for foreign affairs, Count Walewski, wrote a dispatch in which he asked whether England considered that hospitality was due to assassins. Ought English legislation, he asked, to contribute to favor their designs and their attempts? And can it continue to shelter persons who by their flagrant acts put themselves outside the pale of common rights and under the ban of humanity? The Duc de Persigny, then ambassador of France in England, made a very foolish and unfortunate reply to a deputation from the Corporation of London, in which he took on himself to point out that if the law of England was strong enough to put down conspiracies for assassination, it ought to be put in motion, and if it were not, it ought to be made stronger. Persigny did not indeed put this forward as his own contribution of advice to England. He gave it as an expression of the public feeling of France, and as an explanation of the anger which was aflame in that country. France, he said, does not understand and cannot understand this state of things, and in that lies the danger, for she may mistake the true sentiments of her ally, and may cease to believe in England's sincerity. Talk of that kind would have been excusable and natural on the part of an imperialist orator in the corps législatif in Paris, but it was silly and impertinent when it came from a professional diplomatist. That flavor of the canteen and the barrack room which the prince consort detected and disliked in the emperor's associates was very perceptible in Persigny's harangue. The barrack room and the canteen, however, had much more to say in the matter. Addresses of congratulation were poured in upon the emperor from the French army, and many of them were full of insulting allusions to England as the sheltering ground of assassination. One regiment declared that it longed to demand an account from the land of impunity, which contains the haunts of the monsters who are sheltered by its laws. This regiment begged of the emperor to give them the order, and we will pursue them even to their stronghold. In another address it was urged that the infamous haunt, repère en femme, in which machinations so infernal are planned, London, that is, should be destroyed forever. Some of these addresses were inserted in the Moniteur, then the official organ of the French government. It was afterwards explained that the official sanction thus apparently given to the rodomontades of the French colonels was a mere piece of inadvertence. There were so many addresses sent in, it was said, 
that some of them escaped examination count walewski expressed the regret of the emperor that language and sentiments so utterly unlike his own should have found their way into publicity it is certain that louis napoleon would never have deliberately sanctioned the obstreperous buffoonery of such sentences as we have referred to but anyhow the addresses were published were read in england and aroused in this country an amount of popular resentment not unlikely to explode in utterances as vehement and thoughtless as those of the angry french colonels themselves End of section fourteen